Previously on our Kentucky Route Zero saga. I guess the common thread throughout almost every element of this of, of this uh, game so far has been debt. You wake up without a leg. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, my leg! And that's when you meet new characters, right? That's right, Junebug and Johnny. Do we want to talk about the really good moment where Junebug sings and it's a beautiful moment? Uh, 100%. Well, I mean, uh, you come upon the Hall of the Mountain King, this disastrous mess of technology and fire and metal. Um, the story that's being told in this adventure game that you're playing on Xanadu is that there are ties between the story that's being told on that adventure game and the first interlude, the limits and demonstrations that we played. There's a whole distillery underneath you. And not only is there a whole distillery underneath you, nobody in this distillery is weirded out at at all that you just stumbled into it. Great, you're 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 just about late. Let's get you through the onboarding process. And throughout this experience, you you can always kind of go back to saying like, but actually, I'm just here for directions. I just kind of got lost. I need to I need to leave. You get to the point where you do little's like, cool, tour's over. Great job. Uh, let's just have a celebratory drink of of top shelf hard times whiskey stuff. You just kind of drank from that top shelf whiskey which isn't cheap and i just wasted a whole bunch of my time to give you a tour which again waste the company time it sounds like you're gonna have to work that off i was like debt super super frustrating welcome to episode 96 of the left behind game club this week we play kentucky route zero act four let's get right into it you're listening to the left behind game club Welcome to the Left Behind Game Club, our never-ending attempt to make sure that no game is left behind. I'm your host, Jacob McCourt, and today I have two friends with me. The first friend, you know him, you love him, his name is Michael Ruffalo. I'm excited to talk about a girthy episode or act of this game. And here to talk about Act 4 of Kentucky Route Zero, uh, it will be his seventh time on the show, uh, Adam Ionetta, Welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for having me Yay. back. <laughs> Um, you've been on for all these Kentucky Route Zero episodes, so let's just, like, continue with this series. Uh, this is Act 4 of Kentucky Route Zero, developed by Cardboard Computer, published by Annapurna Interactive. Uh, if you're coming into this without having listened to our other six episodes of the series, you may want to, like, hit pause on this one, go back to the first episode of our Kentucky Route Zero series, which is Kentucky Route Zero Act 1, start with that, and and we hope you make it here. Mike, you said that this episode is quite girthy. Um, what did you mean when you said that? I mean, I meant that there is not only a lot that happens, but it is, I think, the lengthiest episode or or act of this game so far. Did a lot happen, though? Uh, I would say so. I would say there's okay. a very monumental uh, thing that happens in this act. Do you not think so? I I would actually go as far as to say I disagree with you, Michael, there, because contrasted with the events of Act 3, while there were some, some pretty big moments within this scene, 
I, I, or this, uh, this act, I, I found it more along the lines of just further character development and nothing, certainly nothing as jarring as, as what we saw from act three. And I, I think, um, one of the characters puts it quite nicely in this act. They refer to it as a pleasant detour. And that's, that's how I sort of interpreted the rest of this, uh, this playthrough of this act. So, um, but, uh, you know, for all of those on the discord, please feel free to come at me, uh, with, uh, <laughs> with, with your, I, with I will be the, drawn. I, I will be the scapegoat. So no, I wanted to be the scapegoat because this episode <laughs> is Seinfeld. This whole thing is Seinfeld. No. <laughs> you missed it. It's a show it. about nothing. You missed right? it. You missed it. You totally missed it. I missed it hard. So why don't we just get right into it, and then you can educate us, Michael, on how we have completely missed the boat. Wink! <laughs> oh, oh. Gotta love Jacob, a good you dad just, joke. You, you, make it an, you make a concerted effort to make me groan in every episode of this <laughs> podcast. And hey, guess what? Lately, it's been a more and more frequent occurrence. <laughs> you, you're succeeding. You're succeeding. Thank you're, you. You're figuring out the pun button that makes me go, ugh. <laughs> Tell um, us about the elephant in the room, or rather, God. the mucky mammoth. Uh, <laughs> you're the worst. This man is Jacob on fire. <laughs> Speaking of on fire, uh, so where we left off in Act 3 was at the Bureau of Reclaimed Spaces with uh, a loud foghorn of a boat pulling up, and Conway realizing that, well, I guess I work for... The, the hard time distillery now. I, I guess I have a new gig, a new job. Um, and then we played the interlude. Oh, um, here uh, and there here along the echo. Here and there along the echo. Here and there along the echo. Uh, Traveler's Guide to the Zero. And uh, we were confronted with a telephone that told us a bit about some of the places that we would stumble across and things we might see in this act. And what this act, I think, largely is about is shifting, I think, our perspective from Conway as the main character, as the person we experience a lot of the story through, even though this game largely took place in third person and you got to control both what Shannon would say and Conway would say in one conversation. This is a this is a move where we see Conway develop, you know into more of a character and less someone that we are controlling and making decisions for. Um, and so we hop on board the boat uh, and there is, instead of a foghorn, it's a mechanical elephant that makes the foghorn sound and it's creaking and it's groaning and there's something wrong with it and it's the humidity. One thing I found really interesting uh, about this act is that, so as we had discussed in previous episodes, um, a lot of the destinations within this game are uh, primarily fictitious, um, but it does take place in Kentucky. And actually, uh, there is such a place in Kentucky known as the Echo River, and it's inside of what is known Get as Mammoth Cave. Get and out so of here! It's, Stop. Yeah, exactly. I I didn't I didn't appreciate this until after the fact, and I was I was just doing some research on um, the previous interlude here and there along the Echo, and I just typed in Echo River, and it said, "Oh, the Echo River is a body of water that exists uh, subterranean uh, inside the Mammoth Cave." And I thought, Mammoth Cave, Echo River, Mucky Mammoth, 
Layers upon layers upon layers. It's Folding just, in on itself. Shrek is just peeling the onion more and more <laughs> and more. So, so yeah, I guess we start out this episode. That's, that's like an incredibly cool fact. I'm still kind of like mind blown about that. Um, but we start out this episode with Will uh, trying to figure out the operations manual for this mammoth. And it's kind of nonsensical. Kind of doesn't make sense. <laughs> but... You know, at this point, what do we expect, really? Do we expect a straightforward operations manual on how to fix your mechanical mammoth? <laughs> I think not. I think my favorite part of Kentucky Route Zero is the world that they've built. And at least for the last two openings, this one in Act 3's opening, it just hits you how hard the art direction is in this game it opens to this mammoth who is just its trunk is going up on a boat and even when you explore the boat the boat kind of like the first act just kind of melts away and you begin to see the inside of it i love the world and i love the art direction in this game i think that's the that's the biggest thing i'm going to take away from this whole experience on top of that i would say that since the beginning the game has grown artistically um, whereas, you know, at yes. the very beginning, they were just sort of these static scenes where, you know, you could go from the top level to the lower level, but you were still in the same area. Whereas now, uh, for example, exploring the Mucky Mammoth, you have a full 360 perspective of the it's ship so cool. that you can explore. It's it's amazing. And, you know, having the chance to go inside the boat, we see that same sort of, sort of Paper Mario-esque uh, scene transition where the the walls just seem to peel away like individual strips of paper. So it's uh, and there I feel as though and, and I'm sure we'll discuss this at length later on. But they they take a lot more risks with uh, the methods of gameplay and the whole um, point and click text based uh, interaction mechanic that they've done so far. They've taken a lot of really really good r- risks here. At least I yeah. think so. In, in in I think film terms, they've cardboard computers really grown in their confidence at directing. They are they are attempting more ballsy things, um, more complicated, challenging, um, visually interesting ways to you know get across what they're trying to show here. Um, you know, you could very well see this first scene uh, on top of the the mucky mammoth, this boat. Um, being done in two dimensions where you're walking from one end of it to the other and you walk inside and it's similar to how we experience Equus oils at the very beginning of the game. You could see it being done like that, but you know, years into development um, at the point in which, you know, act four is being released. What at least three or four years after um, the very first, this is a fully 3d, um, and perspective shifts as you move from different parts of the boat. Mm-hmm. I almost wonder how many players, and this is a sidebar that I'll, I'll keep very short, I wonder how many players played Act 1 and didn't necessarily, they weren't necessarily gripped by the world, and there wasn't these cool, artistic, world-building elements, and they fell off. Like, I just, I really wonder how many people fell off after the first act, and they don't get to see the incredible world that's being built better and better with every single act that goes on. Well, for those of Just them a sidebar. That, for for those that did do that, they certainly missed the boat, especially with this act. <laughs> oh, oh, I got oh. Adam now. Oh, Just call me the Punisher. So, ah! so uh, yeah. So <laughs> you, you realize that you can't fix the mammoth. Um, 
And I think this is when we meet Kate, correct? The theremin yes. player. Uh, uh, the captain of this boat. Yeah, correct? Kate is Kate is the captain or pilot of this ship. Clara is another character. She's the theremin player that we meet a little bit later oh, on. Oh, gotcha. My bad. I guess I might have confused them. But sea names. But but in, but apparently, in addition to piloting this vessel, she also is a doula, which is um, I guess akin yes. to a um, a midwife or a maternity nurse. Um, I, I couldn't really split the hairs between uh, all of the differences that there are. Um, my, my wife could because her mother is actually a maternity nurse, so I'm sure she could give you a, an at-length description. But uh, but in addition to piloting a vessel, she also pilots uh, newly uh, or uh, upcoming mothers on their on their journey through parenthood. <laughs> huh. Um, just a, a fun fact um, that uh, this character was based on... Um, Hecate is that is that the correct way you say that um, that Greek god? Essentially, uh, uh, they were based on um, this maternal Greek god that has to do with nature and fertility, and so uh, I, I think it's probably very fitting that she's a doula. That's so cool. Also, I, I liked her. I liked her character design too. I felt like she was the first character where I'm like, oh, cool! Like you were in the overalls, like you have a, a look. With the with the big boots too, as as um, all characters do. So uh, I I think at some point we end up taking control of Ezra, and is this the point in which Ezra is given the task to record things throughout the ship? Yeah, to record sounds. Yeah, Johnny gives him a tape recorder because he he explains with his own music. Um, he does a lot of what's called found sound music, which is taking. Uh, pre-recorded noises from everyday life, whether they're bird calls or just, um, you know, plates crashing or anything like that, and somehow incorporating them into uh, uh, recordings of musical instruments being played or just uh, combining them with other instruments to create something new. And at this point, um, I started thinking to myself, um, the reference that's being made here to probably one of the most well-known found sound musicians of the 20th century, John Cage. And I know we had spoken previously about the reference to Junebug and Johnny as June and John Cash. And I thought, okay, I wonder if there's another reference here to maybe John Cage and how he... I'm uh, For those of you not familiar with John Cage, if you ever get a chance, look up uh, one of his most well-known pieces, 4 minutes and 33 seconds. And you'll you'll understand what I mean when I, I say uh, how we specialized in the idea of using found sounds and creating it as a form of music. Interesting. Uh, you know what? I would... I would hazard a guess that that uh, allusion or reference was was doubled up there, that it that it was both a Johnny and a John Cage uh, reference in in combo. Um, but so you know we have I think one of the most crucial conversations that happens right here on on the boat, knowing that the boat is how we get to Dogwood Drive, get to the end of our journey, and Shannon's. Shannon's having a conversation with Conway and they, I think end up having this conversation where, um, Shannon, you, you get to choose whether you say like, Oh, right. Like as much as I feel you're, you're my friend, I barely know you. Like, I don't, I don't really know you that well. Um, and I don't know why that you're doing the things that you're doing. Like ultimately taking on this job, uh, at the, at the distillery. 
Um, and I feel like this conversation is where we get a, a much clearer sense of who Conway is aside from the character that we've been controlling and playing this whole time. Is this the first time we noticed that one of his other limbs may have disappeared? Yes. Yes, this is this is the first time we actually see that in addition to his leg now being uh this crystalline uh shape and color akin to the uh hard times distillery workers, his his opposite arm is now the same consistency. And I mean the the first time I saw that, I immediately thought to myself debt it's debt the crushing theme that is just constantly <laughs> right. weighing down this entire game it is debt and in addition to that we we learn so much more about Conway because uh because we take on the role of Shannon and we this is probably the first time i've ever heard Conway say something really interesting or of or of any real depth in this game thus far and i i think that's because he he unfortunately has has given up his his fifteen year uh, Alcoholics Anonymous chip and uh, and has started drinking again and has now got Liquid Courage on his side and he I, I think one of the most interesting things he says uh, at the beginning of this act is something along the lines of memories are kind of like the breadcrumbs of our thought processes or things like that and you kind of uh, following those breadcrumbs back to a memory that you may or may not remember to be true or not and I I thought. That's the most interesting thing he said this entire game thus far. I, up, <laughs> up until now, I just kind of thought of him as this uh, Billy Bob Thornton truck driver with you know one dimensional. But but now there's there's something there. There's a real character here, and as we progress on throughout this act, you get to see more and more of this character in various various colors, shapes, and sizes. Adam, you said so many like interesting things in there um the first thing that i thought of when i saw the arm was missing is the expression uh it cost me an arm and a leg so again just like the whole debt theme is coming back but it just made me incredibly angry i I think that seeing his his arm and leg gone and just him being kind of okay with the fact that you know he's he's lost more of himself not only physically but also um spiritually in the fact that now he's drinking uh, and all that he kept saying, and I think he said it multiple times in the episode, is that he just wants to die with dignity, and dying with dignity is a thing that kept coming back, but I just felt incredibly angry throughout this entire game, because Conway gave it all up because of debt, I guess. Mike? He, he was driven to drink. Yeah. Um, yeah. He kind of felt like he didn't have anything to live for anymore. Or at least that that was my view of it. I I want to touch on the conversation of debt. Conway has... A really good quote in there that, you know, I don't think is the most profound thing, but definitely struck me, which is, quote, I've got to repay my debt. Hell, I should be grateful for the opportunity. If you want to die with any dignity, you've got to settle up. That's why it's such a damn shame when people go sudden. And, you know, back to what you were saying, Adam, that like, yes, debt crushing debt is the thing that this game is about and if we didn't like clue into it earlier the <laughs> miners literally being drowned in in a water drowning in their debt uh is another illusion all of these buildings being underwater another form of being in debt wake um, up people <laughs> yeah i i think the the thing that this episode or this act made really really clear to me is that it's debt beyond just a financial uh, level it's it's debt in the sense of obligation 
Um, and, you know, we were given a hint of that, I think, earlier in the entertainment when uh, the, the daughter was cutting off her parents uh, and cutting off their tab and, and not allowing them to, you know, essentially drink drink themselves into poverty. Um, that, it, that it goes beyond just, I have to pay this amount of money back. It goes to, well, if this guy is not going to be able to complete the thing that you know, he said he was going to, I'm going to do it for him because I have an obligation. Um, and you know, it's, it's a question that's posed throughout the game. You know, why is Conway so dedicated to getting this, getting this last shipment to, to dogwood drive? It doesn't seem like his boss is there anymore, right? It doesn't seem like the other person who would be working for Lisette, um, is is mentally you know understanding what's happening um it seems like he's just doing it out of a sense of duty um or an, or an obligation so uh to to me this was an episode that or an act that made it really clear it's not just financial debt it's it's obligation as a whole yeah one quick comment and then i think we'll move on uh i immediately thought of the river sticks throughout this entire um, oh. section because you know you're you're going down the river just like you would in mythology and along the river the river sticks to your death um the hard times boys as as we've coined them uh remind me a lot of hades mm-hmm. and sorry that i keep going back to mythology but like that's I, I got a lot of that vibe throughout this this act we'll touch on the miners uh thing later because i i think it had something to do with capitalism rather than debt um, but I digress. Uh, the second scene is just a gas station, right? So, yeah, I, I think we should just give a, one little bit of more context, which is that the, the you know, in the first act, you are driving as a wheel along the different roads of Kentucky. Um, in the, I think, second or third act, we are flying on the back of an eagle or in the talons of an eagle across Kentucky. Uh, in this one, we are in a boat just sailing our way through the zero down the river um, on our way to Dogwood Drive. And we hit location after location and we decide one of two things. Are we going to be going, are we going to be picking one character to, you know, entertain with, or are we going to pick another? Um, And the first one along the way, as Jacob said, is the gas station. Mm-hmm. And I think that, uh, and I want to ask this question just so to make sure I understand. My thought too was that you can either pick to go on whatever adventure you have to take in that scene, or you can just stay on the boat too, right? Like in yes. addition to it being different characters, it's either like do the thing or stay on the boat and don't do the thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Th- those are the okay. two primary choices you have throughout this entire, um, act. And, uh, the the other thing that's worth mentioning is that um, contrasted with every other act where you have direct control of your vehicle from one destination to the other, I, you, you never play the role of Kate piloting the ship. The boat moves on its own, and you're, the only thing that you really control during these um, scene changes from one scene to the other during the overworld map is the dialogue that Will uh, begins to spin as he's basically telling the story of your adventures along the Echo River and, and what it is that you see and, and how the characters are, are reacting and responding to one another. And I, I think there'll be times where, like, one of us chose to stay in the boat so the other two might have to lead the discussion. But I think 
for this first one, I'm I'm assuming that all three of us went to the gas station, right? Yes. I actually didn't. Oh, really? Oh, you didn't? Yeah. Okay. I I chose to stay on the boat, um, and I I'm glad I did because there were some really interesting parts. Um, the the first one was so you you play the role of Ezra, and uh, you actually the the scene starts with you sitting at the helm of this ship, and you're you're looking around surveying the landscape, and Kate finds you and says, "Oh, thanks for uh, for manning things in the." Uh, uh, at the wheel while I was downstairs working on something. Don't tell anybody I let you control the ship for a little bit. So <laughs> here we are, just this adorable little boy in his, like, Sunday best suit driving this <laughs> this, this little Theodore the Tugboat-esque tugboat. And uh, finally, um, you know, once once she's finished with her, her bidding downstairs, she allows you to kind of explore the ship and interact with some of the other characters. There is There is a great line i think that johnny says in regards to ezra and he says you know he's a kid but he's he's his own damn person um which i you know really rings true like yes ezra's a kid but he seems like he has real personality like he he's more than just you know some young kid that's hanging around um and he and he has quirks and and his own i guess i just keep repeating it but personality and and more than that, he's given so much more responsibility in this act, even or in this specific scene, even after having been entrusted to drive the boat. Kate then asks her, you know, why don't you give uh, Will a hand downstairs because he's busy um, reworking some of the maps? Because apparently, one of the the token features about the Echo River is that things don't always stay the same for very long, and the the map is constantly changing. And so she she's talking about different landmarks that they should be looking out for. It's like, oh, you know, I, I think uh, the gas station is just past uh, Dinosaur Rock. It's like, well, I, I haven't seen any rocks that look like dinosaurs yet. But, uh, oh, well, you know, the, the river kind of changes things over time and, and things move around all the time. So uh, why don't you give Will a hand with the map? And this is where we actually... Um, get a chance to meet uh, one of the previously mentioned characters, uh, Clara, who is who is also a musician and who knows um, Johnny and Junebug. And uh, interestingly enough, she plays a theremin, which is um, that instrument that we, we know from all of the token 1970s, <laughs> 1980s, very cheesy alien sci-fi movies that make sort of the... Exactly, exactly. And, it's the only uh, instrument you don't touch. Exactly. That was like by far the best line that Shannon or was it Shannon or Clara who says it, the only instrument that you never ever touch. And uh and again going back to the the references that we're seeing throughout here, um Clara is actually her name is based off of uh Clara Rockwell who is actually um probably the only theremin virtuoso that ever existed. Um so <laughs> It's it's pretty interesting to see where they where they draw their inspiration from. So we we get a chance to meet with with Clara and see Shannon interact with the theremin, and then uh, you're given the chance to help Will sort of rework some of the maps. And you're given a choice between using a, a nice clean map or a, an old dirty map or sort of a faded one. But that's that's really the the meat and potatoes of this scene. Nothing really more substantial happens beyond that. Jacob, do you want to walk us through what happens at the gas station? Glory, yeah, it's good so, to be among friends. 
Yeah, so Al um, is, I guess, one of the main characters on this on this floating gas station, which uh, I, I don't remember which character alludes to it, but they're like, hey, this this uh, this gas station doesn't really have a fixed location, but it's always here when I need it. <laughs> uh, and you meet Al, who that's kind of his most famous line in all caps, right? Glory, it's good to be among friends. Yeah, and he tells this story about sailing down what is it the echo and sailing down the river and not having any light and you know only having a bag of apples and getting to (laughs) you know getting to his last apple and finding that there was a maggot in it and he waits until the very end and then the maggot turns into a firefly and it gives him some light um you know and he's fine he's able to find his way out um now he's Sorry, go ahead. Keep going. Which, which to me just seemed like, um, you know, a bit of a, an allegory or, or a metaphor for, you know, just when you think you've hit rock bottom, just when you think you're at the end of your, your leash, all you need is a little light to find your way back to, to everyone else. Now, beyond that, there's also a gas station attendant who doesn't have a name and who essentially alludes to the fact that no one ever remembers his face. That's because he's selling face. crystal. Because he's selling crystals. What? And, but you don't yeah. even get his name throughout. No, and yeah. And he talks about this character, uh, gender I don't know, uh, essentially tells how he sells, he or she sells crystals, used to live in Cleveland, Ohio, lived off a hotel inheritance, like took this job because they had to. It was just like a really interesting and bizarre like i guess um uh, another character that fits into the mythology of like uh, now i'm just here i guess that seems <laughs> to be the thing in this game is i i guess i'm here now it was this also the scene where uh there is the vending machine i guess with the claw no that's towards the end that's at, later uh, okay sam and i yeah. we'll we'll save that then yeah, this um, one is about Al, Norm, and Loretta. So Norm mistakes Junebug for another woman. It's a woman he's a really met online. Bizarre. Yes. Yeah. Ooh. And then <laughs> and then that's... she helps him with his online dating profile, which <laughs> yeah. I thought was amazing. <laughs> that's that's essentially the gas station, and then you gas up, and then you move on, right? And then you move on and you're given another choice for scene three of either the rum colony or, again, staying on the Mucky Mammoth. I definitely um, took the rum colony. I, too, chose the rum colony this time. I did as well, and I am so glad because this is one of my favorite locations in the entire game. It's not only beautiful and aesthetic, but I feel like you learn a lot about uh, Conway along the way. Um, you stumble into him and other members of the Bureau of Reclaimed Spaces just totally drunk out of their minds, um, <laughs> passed out in the sand, just enjoying their life, blissed out. The The first thing I thought of when I, when I saw Conway and was just chatting with him was Conway is no longer Conway. Conway is Florida Stanley from the post-Michael Scott episodes of The Office. <laughs> Florida Stanley smiles. Florida Stanley is always present and has a good time. So he was he was just fun-loving. In- <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I just... I. It was, it was hilarious to see him go from one polar opposite to something like this, where he is just 
having a good time. A character that I thought at the very beginning was all about just getting the job done and getting it done as quickly as possible to now just kicking back and in, enjoying some sort of drink that nobody really remembers the name to, but it's it's got some sort of pink flower, so. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you guys actually looked through the menu kind of at the bar, but imagine that there's a bar and then there's a beach right around this bar and then there's water kind of on the beach. If you go into the kind of tiki hut, uh, there's a menu where you can look at all the drinks that are in there and I don't know about you guys, but I at least look at a few of the drinks. A lot of them involve rum. Surprise. <laughs> I didn't see like that. The I didn't invisible notice death. that. Yeah, so oh. you can actually look at all of the recipes. The Invisible Death, my friends, is one shot of white rum, two shots of ugly rum, simple syrup, look for a minute, throw an orange peel on top, and that's the drink. Oh my gosh. Very good. Just there's there's so much writing in this game. It's not even about like quality the quality is very high but there's just so much of it in this game in this act the the one thing that i wanted to ask you guys your opinion on was uh, this this whole destination um looking back at the the second interlude the entertainment and harry the bartender is going on about this vacation he did or didn't have and he he says you know i i can't remember i was at a beach or i was at Get a pool and i was i thought to myself is this where harry went is this where he went cuz he even talks about having seen a dinosaur or something like that and i thought is he referencing dinosaur rock and he even talks about you know like i i can't remember so maybe he was present at the rum colony on his own little vacation at one point and had this, you know, sort of forget-me-not drink that uh, basically cleared his memory of whatever it was. So I'm, I'm, I'm very curious to know what your guys' opinions are on that and if, if at any point that kind of came to your mind as well. No, I, I just had a lot of questions about things that were in the episode. I, I, I want to ask Mike too, but like, it was like, what were the phone calls? What's going on with Conway? Who is Cyrano? And, and why is why is he named after Cyrano de Bergerac? <laughs> That's bad French. Cyrano de Bergerac, uh, which bien, is a five act, which is a five act play as well. Um, I just had a lot of questions. I didn't really ask. Like, hmm, I wonder in the entertainment is this a place where Harry went to? Mike, did you even think about that? No, I did. I definitely did not piece that together. Um, I, I thought I remembered Harry in the entertainment saying that he w- he went to Louisiana or New Orleans right. or, or something along those lines. Um, but I could very well see that also being one of the ways this game folds in on itself um, and, and fi- finds ways to reference itself multiple times over. Um, what I did love in this scene is the ways, and, and I say love with some you know, some pause, but the ways in which you really get a sense of Conway and he, he comes and he says, you know, I just feel like buried under my memories. And you can tell that one of the, one of the reasons he's drinking is just to kind of escape them, escape the, the memories of a life. It seems unfulfilled, um, you know, wanting to be with Lisette and, and not being able to in the way, um, that, that he ultimately wanted to. Um, and now it's, it's too late and it doesn't seem like he's a man who has much to live for anymore other than, you know, completing this quest. Um, and it seems to be one of the reasons why he's, he's started drinking, or at least that's my view of it. Um, but it's, 
great because this beach is really dark and you have a flashlight or a lantern that you can use. And as you walk around, you find things in the sand, trading cards, feathers, a bunch of stuff that gives you just a little bit more insight into the world, into Shannon as a character. But one of the things is if you walk up to Conway the first time, he's just sitting there alone drinking, drinking his drink. But when you come back, in the chairs, you only see them when the light flashes on them. It's other hard time boys no. um, who are just there as skeletons that he's drinking with. I yeah. did not know that. Yeah, it's it's a, an interesting little, I think, illusion as to what's to come. Yeah, yeah, it's it's much like the degaussing mechanic in the third act where yeah. you would kind of degauss the screen and they'd show up. But in this case, you turn the light or you turn the lamp and there they'd be. Um... I just, the ambiance in this level is, again, I can't think of a level or a scene that I've liked more. Like, I wanted, like, Ben Babbitt's version of Kokomo by the Beach Boys to play (laughs) at that exact moment. Well, was that not the steel guitar song from Cyrano? Exactly. I mean, ish, yeah. But like, yeah. I wanted vocals and everything. Oh. Uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna tweet them about it later and be like, hey, I want your cover of Kokomo stat. Uh, <laughs> maybe not on Blank Media Retweet. though, because Blank Media is at a premium in this world too. The bartender alludes to Blank Media being, or Serena, Cyrano says like, hey, Blank Media, we have to re-record our, over our tapes. It's at a premium right now. I guess it's hard to find Blank Media. Yeah, and I I think that's when he talks about. Um, the whole idea about, uh, you know, re-recording over a tape and sort of having bits and pieces of the previous work sort of seep through into what's new, almost uh, like the idea of, like, ghosts living within technology and the whole idea that, you know, um, the memories of something past are now making their way through to what's new. Um, and the, the really interesting thing here is that while... While Cyrano is is playing on his lap steel guitar, you actually, I think for the first time, get to take on the role of Johnny and uh, basically pick up the cup and collect uh, Cyrano's fee from all of the different patrons around the beach. And, you know, your, your dialogue box is just now a form of currency where certain characters will offer you, I, I think, maybe as high as $15 and others will just not offer you a single thing, but you can still interact with them. Uh, so it's it's really interesting to see the the, the lives of the peddling busker <laughs> and his entourage. Uh, uh, do you guys have any other things you want to say about, uh, about this scene? No? Okay. Uh, the fourth scene gives you a choice between a phone or staying on the ship. <laughs> and I don't know about you guys, but this is kind of where the episode started to lose me. I stayed on the ship. I I, I also stayed on the ship. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> Did we all Take stay it? on the okay. ship? No, I I took the phone call, and I feel like I'm gonna have a. Uh, people are gonna miss out on on what you could get from the phone, but I'll, I'll try my best here. Okay, give us give us your best shot. Yep. <sighs> okay, so Ezra, Julian, Conway, Will, and a bunch of other folks make phone calls, uh, and they're all different kinds of phone calls. Uh, some of them uh, kind of, in my opinion, 
uh, tie into past things. There's a man that gets to the phone right away, and it's Brandon, who's the janitor from the self-storage facility oh, no. in the second act. Hey. He makes a phone call about how he needs to call his mother for a ride because he took a, a played a card game that took way too long, and his mom, it's, it's there. Um, Shannon calls her friend Carrington, um... Uh, who is living in what appeared to me to either be like Latin America or like some kind of like it reminded me of like a Brazilian style apartment. Um, that phone call happens. Uh, I think it's just a lot of world building within the world. There's also voiceover in this scene, which is the first time I think we've heard voiceover in the entire game for one section. I think it's, I forget whose phone call, but I, I heard voiceover come out of my computer and I went, is that, is that this game? Um, I, guys, I don't have that much for you apart from that. It's Ezra going to call Julie and the Eagle and Claire and Kate having to do business. There's a lot, there's a lot there and I'm a dumb dumb. So I just kind of went. I kind of lost myself a little bit in that act. What did what did the the voiceover section talk about? If you don't mind my asking, I I can't remember. I can't remember because I'm I'm really curious. There have been uh, sort of just in my my journeys going through the fan wiki. There have been all these theories and conspiracies about certain sections of the game that heavily relied on the audience participation from the players, whereas. Um, for instance, um, going back to Act 3, when you're in the graveyard with Ezra and Junebug looking around the gravestones, um, the theory was that all of the names mentioned were actually um, Kickstarter backers um, who oh, originally helped to fund the game. And so the theory was, with that scene in particular, the telephone calls with the voiceover were actually um, actual recorded messages from people left behind after using the... Uh, the phone number for here and there along the echo during any one of the extension points where it's like oh uh, to 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 talk or to to introduce yourself to someone new dial extension five two seven six or whatever it is and so oh but I I bear in mind this is this is all just one great big pot of creepy pasta so uh, whether or not this is actually real or not I don't know it's it's interesting. Um, to, to make note of. If it is, I mean, kudos to Cardboard Computer for, for getting that in depth. Um, but I, I, whether or not it is true, the, the jury is still out. It's, um, I, I kind of, so one of the messages, essentially Willits goes up to the, to the phone and he's like, hey, you have a bunch of missed messages, right? And the message I got was kind of nonsense it was about bells or something, but I I don't remember I don't remember it of being like any particular interest. I was just more blown away that it was a voice and there was more <laughs> than one. But a lot of it was just like stories that maybe didn't tie into a specific character, so I kind of just glazed over a bit. Uh-huh. Our adventures on the ship were not <laughs> nearly as uh, exciting, but so to to go back a minute when you when you arrive at this telephone booth you're you're given the option of either going out uh, off the boat or given the option of i i think it's something along the lines of blue and valkyrie or at least blue is the the name of the dog that i gave um blue and valkyrie uh lounge on the ship and i was actually kind of excited because blue to me is or the the dog i should say is definitely one of the more underappreciated characters in this game up until this <laughs> point and i was i was super excited uh 
to to finally get the chance to maybe play as him and see how his game mechanics are going to work in his interactions. And so the the scene opens up, and you've got Blue sitting next to Valkyrie, who is sort of a uh, uh, an Abizan bloodhound or dashhound kind of dog um, who belongs to Kate. And they're they're just sitting there, and the the camera slowly zooms in for about five to ten seconds, and that's it. And uh, and it- end of scene. <laughs> it was the moment I realized you can either choose to do something or do nothing. Exactly. Th- this was the point of the game where I literally thought I was being insulted for taking the option to to stay on the ship. So for the for the duration of the game, if I was given the option to stay on the boat, I seldom ever took that option because I, I knew they were just going to make fun of me even more. So same, <laughs> same. So um, we after that we move on to the Radvansky Center. This place is probably one of my favorite scenes in this entire uh, act. Yes. And this is where we get teased with Weaver Marquez again. Um, and, and what the Radvansky Center is, is Mimi and Jen, two employees who are watching, I guess, security cam footage mm-hmm. of the group rolling up to it. And uh, they're watching Shannon and we're controlling Shannon uh, in this room, filling out a questionnaire and Shannon essentially saying like, "Yeah, this is this is a way to, for us to make some money while while we're on while we're on the trip." Um, and it's about interpreting art and different things and and how people react to it. And I love the the dialogue between Jen and Mimi back and forth. That like, oh man, like it's a guava, but no one would have context for not being a guava. <laughs> it's a pear. You know, especially because it's a watercolor and not very defined. And also, like, every, you know, these results are invalid because everyone's bringing their own life experiences to the mix. Nothing here is objective. And I was like, I love this. This is great. This is the kind of snark I live for. <laughs> there there was the one moment where I, I think it's in that room with the archway and the, the three different paintings where there's just this white kitten sitting at the opposite end of the room. And you're you're given the option to take a, a small can of cat food and feed it to the cat. And uh, Mimi and Jen are talking back and forth to one another. And the one says to the other, um, I don't remember this being a part of the testing. And the other one says, no, um, sometimes I just forget to feed the cats. So I actually try to get the test subjects to do it for me. <laughs> and I... I there's just... <laughs> I left a post-it note that said, feed the cat. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I Uh, loved it. The thing that I kind of clung on to here was the first mention of uh, the community television station. WEPV. WEBP. Yeah. Which I'm assuming we'll find out more about later. But um, I think both Mimi and Jen talk about how they worked there and Marquez used to work there. But again, it's one of those like um, uh, loose ends that I'm sure we'll get dealt with later. I'm not exactly sure it's going to be dealt with because I feel like (laughs) this game is the type of game that's going to leave a lot of loose ends just hanging. You know why I'm convinced? Why? Have you ever looked at the beginning screen of this game? No. So it's the cardboard computer logo. It's uh-huh. the Annapurna oh. Interactive logo. And in the middle of those two is the, hand the, with the lo- WEVP yeah. TV oh. logo. See, I've yeah. been so curious about that because that icon shows up 
regularly on the the fan wiki right at the bottom where it shows all the different like information like the publishers of the site and then it shows that small icon so that all makes sense now so i'm, I'm curious to see how much further we get to interesting interesting yeah. so yeah so th- this is one of the two grad students explaining their experience with weaver marquez being this really bright person who worked in a pretty you know low volunteer role as a as an archivist and then one day just disappearing and which you know everyone thought was normal um but then for years on the broadcast at the at the studio would just drop and it would be replaced by footage of weaver sitting in the studio not really doing anything just standing still and they could never quite figure out why and what happened um and it was one of those it's it's part of the mythology that i love especially because earlier you know they have this conversation about shannon just kind of being at peace that Weaver's dead. Um, one of the first things, one of the first dialogue options you're given is about how mom didn't let me watch a lot of TV because she thought that's where the ghosts came from. Um, and, you know, Shannon being a TV repair person and, and having all of these connections um, to it that, you know, I, I thought it was a great little part of the, the magic of this world. Coconut. Coconut's the cat, right? Coconut is the name of this cat. I actually yes. didn't remember that at all. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I kind of thought Jacob was losing it there. He just starts a sentence with coconut. I'm like, guava, uh, apple, <laughs> coconut. <laughs> no, uh, coconut's the cat that you end up taking with you back on the ship. Oh, really? I didn't, I didn't, oh, I didn't realize that. he, he uh, came back on the ship. Yeah, so I think at one point they so imagine like it's it's different camera views and they can switch between them to see what the subject is doing in the in the different rooms, right? At one point they lose track of the cat and they're like, I wonder where the cat went. The cat just disappeared one day. Maybe these guys took them. Uh, so they go out and there's a camera outside where the boat is, and they actually see Coconut leave with kind of the big group including conway and at the same time in the on the camera view they see that conway is again with the people we have called the hard time boys um who they call the creepy distillery guys yeah this is the first time that i actually saw them in the scene because i i didn't appreciate that you could find them with the flashlight back at the rum colony so it uh it it actually spooked me a little bit because up until now I just kind of thought no we're just enjoying this this lazy river boat ride down the down the river until uh oh no here come <laughs> here comes debt knocking at your door so <laughs> um is this the first time that those characters have been acknowledged by someone I think it may be uh, I mean people people have talked about the knowing the hard time boys people definitely recognize when the hard time boys boy entered uh the enter in the entertainment mm-hmm. um i i think that there are moments throughout and um but i think it's on a case by case basis people are either knowing or afraid of them as the strangers because i think if if you remember correctly Xanadu and Dawn I think they just describe describe them as the strangers who's come, who come to scrape the goo off of the the crystals. That's right. Um uh, so uh, but what I did what I did love about this scene is you get some outside perspective on the characters that you've come to to know and get <laughs> close to, right? Like Jen and Mimi make comments about Conway looking like he's he's been through some things. How he's he's a little run down and how I think they make comments about how he looks like he's had a history of drinking. Um, 
So yeah, I, I appreciated the the character building just by observation. Uh, this was this was the first moment in the in this act in particular where I sort of had sort of a jaw dropping moment or a, you know a a large gasp at uh, what was slowly beginning to unfold um, because up until now it's it's just been sort of a pleasant detour as uh, as Junebug says back at the Rum Colony because um, as Mimi and Jen are conversing back and forth with un- with one another they get on the topic of Mimi's uh, ex-boyfriend who or or late ex-boyfriend because we we find out that something terrible happened to him and that he he passes away and she she then begins to to tell her well you know it it was it was nothing anyone could have done it was it was just a, a freak accident and uh, he ended up falling off of a roof and we we soon find out that this Mimi character her boyfriend was Charlie who has been referenced previously in Act 3 as, I believe, the son of Lizette and Ira, who ultimately falls off the roof uh, at the home of Lizette, where Conway is now employed. And Conway himself uh, also knew about Charlie and had some sort of relationship there. So it's, it's so interesting to see how two people as seemingly harmless as security camera uh, operators have a dynamic relationship with the characters you are playing along this adventure. Are those two characters tied into the university? Because this whole study seems to be funded by, I don't know if it's, if it's funded by consolidated power company or if it's funded by the university. Um, but they bring in will, uh, and how I think they call him wise will as like, a professor at the university. I just, I guess I was confused a little bit there as to where this study that they're conducting is kind of ties in. So uh, from my understanding, Will actually did work at the, uh, at this university um, where I I believe Mimi and Jen did go to. Um, And uh, fun fact, I'm, I'm almost positive. He was a, a music professor because he, he talks about how organ was his specialty. So going back to the, that organ clip from here and there along the echo, um, I'm almost, I'm almost positive that that was a, uh, a will original. Um, (laughs) but, uh, they, they talk about how, um, he, he ended up losing his job because of just sort of horrible political things within the university um and as protest he he walked out without his shoes and refuses to wear shoes um (laughs) from 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 this moment on a true academic exactly exactly so um uh if if you ever see me walking without my shoes then you know i'm I'm just carrying on the, the 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 legacy of will after that scene uh i will have to leave it to you guys because i ended up chilling and taking a nap uh i did too you did too oh, you did <laughs> i i didn't know i is is the next scene uh collecting mushrooms in the grove yeah, or, yeah a grove yeah, a, a grove yeah this uh this is a really really cool scene because it um while, while it is uh, a very static scene unto itself um similar to what we've seen in previous acts um it's literally just this floating rock with all of these beautiful trees and um hints of of light coming from the ground i would i would relate it to this would be to me cardboard computers interpretation of the deku forest from the legend of zelda the wind waker because (laughs) you you have these massive trees and just these 
um, small glowing lights just floating precariously around you, um, and you play the role, you simultaneously uh, play the roles of Kate and Ezra, and this is the first time that we get this, uh, and I'm I'm going to try my best to, to interpret what it was, but uh, whereas in every other scene, it's one dialogue box with one set of options, you actually get two dialogue boxes at the same time going back and forth one being kate and the other being ezra and Wild. you you literally have a dialogue back and forth with the two of them uh conversing back and forth and in addition to the dialogue they have between each other there are moments of uh memories that they that they cherished and kate goes on to talk about a stranger that she met in a bar uh while ezra talks about the relationship he had with his mother and father, um, while at the same time you're you're helping Kate search for mushrooms that she can use for her um, homeopathic doula practice, and uh, all, all the while while you're conversing, uh, we we finally get a shot of what I can only describe as a literal boatload of cats that just floats on by it's uh so this is um if you guys remember from here and there along the echo um the voice operator talks about uh if you have any inquiries about the iron pariah and this this is the iron pariah it is literally a uh a rundown civil war vessel that is completely unmanned except for oh wow all of its inhabitants which are nothing but cats absolutely nothing <laughs> but cats just floating by and it, it completely covers the screen and it's just a black silhouette of this ship covered in cats and you hear nothing but this chorus of meows and purrs as the ship just lazily floats on by and Ezra asks Kate what on earth is that oh that's the iron pariah just pay no attention to it it's it's one of the rarer sights that we that we see along the the echo uh, I am looking at it now because I, I was curious and it's the only time I didn't go off the boat and I re very much regret it because it looks, it is so cool. It's just like an old decrepit boat that is just casting a huge shadow and there are literally like 25 to 30 cats on this thing running back and forth. It, it, I, I honestly had no idea what to think of it. Like it, it came on and I thought... Okay, now the game is really messing with me. This is this is punishment for, you know, having picked the dog's side of the story while we were on the boat. Now they're just giving me <laughs> nothing but cats. Um, but apparently it's it's all a part of the lore that exists within or along the the Echo River. So it's it's a really really interesting uh scene uh within this larger act because you know there there's a lot of character development, especially for a character such as Ezra where you know, we, we don't really know anything about his parents, but he has sort of these flashbacks about how they they seem to be running away from something, and they, they get in a car, and they get to a bus station, and, you know, they, they can't really rest until they, they get to be, or they, they get to where they need to be. Whereas Kate kind of talks about this, what could have been a one-night stand at a bar, but I guess never really uh, followed out anything further than that. And I, I think it's at this point where... Um, I kind of have another one of those eyebrow-raising moments akin to the rum colony and Harry's relationship to it, where, from the description, it makes it seem as though Ezra's parents were actually um, 
and I, I can't remember their names now, but there was the, the one lady at the bar who talked about how her husband was constantly on the road selling hammers, and she she just wanted a love song, and because uh, he says something about how his parents were, they, they used to go to a bar all the time, and that was the last place I remember seeing them, and I, I thought at that point, I wonder if if any of the people that we saw in the entertainment are at all related to Ezra and who he is. But I'm, I'm rambling on way too much about a very, very small scene within a much larger act. So I'm, we're going we're gonna to raise anchor here. So, no, uh, pun intended. Uh, and just, uh, you know, full steam ahead. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mike, do you want to give a quick synopsis of what happened on the boat um, for us before we move on to the, um, the Echo River Central Exchange? Uh, if I remember correctly, Will is trying to cook a stew by memory, and he explains his insane ability to forget and how he showed Ina, the chef, which I assume is an Ina, Ina Garten reference, uh, how he was even able to forget his parents' names on the spot. Um, and uh, in the other room, I don't remember which character it is, but they're watching the recipe on TV. Uh, and yeah, we're, they're cooking a mushroom stew. Nothing big, nothing exciting. Moving on. Uh, the Echo River Exchange. Uh, Echo River Central Exchange. Um, this is this is the scene the for me okay. that I was like, this is the big, this is the big moment. This is this is everything this game has been building up to. Really? Kinda. I maybe that's too, maybe that's too big of a statement, but it's like this is the this is the moment that kind of like punched me. In the same way that, like, the entertainment punched me. Okay. Because so, I, just, I just screamed, ah, capitalism! Like, that's all that <laughs> I did when I saw the... Screams the I marketing the man? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, in this episode, or in this, in this act, in this scene, uh, you are going through a bat sanctuary on the Echo, and it's a conversation between Shannon and Conway. And they have the discussion, they pick up the discussion that I had referenced earlier, where they start talking about how they don't really actually know each other and, um, you know, what, what Conway's thinking and why he's deciding to do the things that he's doing and how, oh, the guys at the distillery are coming up with a consolidated plan for me, so I'll be able, I'll be okay. And Shannon just knows this is a bad idea and this is not good and he's just given up. Um, and you navigate your way through this this sanctuary, and you get to I think one of the more visually like beautiful, stunning elements here, which is the the Grand Central Exchange. I think that's what it's called, where phone operators are connecting when you dial zero, um, and it's just this beautiful to me. Look, look kind of looks like subway with uh emerald green all along the the ceiling uh in a in a arch shape um and just seeing the light bounce off of it in such a really dark dark game um i thought was just visually beautiful it's uh it's worth mentioning that uh contrary to the previous scenes um Shannon and Conway are are not on the mucky mammoth itself they're actually in a small little dinghy uh to try and navigate uh to the um uh the exchange center because the the ship itself is far too large to to navigate through all the weeds and trees 
found within the the bat sanctuary and also uh i i believe there was a memorial site for the miners that had drowned um as well which i i thought was was pretty powerful and uh, i think there's another scene as you're going along uh towards the exchange where um you see another boat of similar size pass you by with uh two or three members from the the hard time boys uh and they and they just casually wave over to conway as if to say you know hey we'll uh, we'll see you in the morning so <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the thing that got me, and it, it kind of spoke to the, the, uh, I guess the class clash that happens in this game, in that, like, there's some writing on the actual, um, memorial with all the helmets, and it, the end thing is, if any son of a bitch in that power company wants to take back these helmets as company property, just you try and see what happens when you do. And I just, like, that to me was just like, th- yeah, that's, that's really great, that's like... Yes. Yeah, it, it definitely does highlight the class struggle. Um, one of the other really powerful moments here, um, and it pays off really strongly later, is while you're paddling in this little boat, just Shannon and Conway, there's a boat that passes by you, and when you turn the flashlight to it, it's two hard-time boys from the distillery. Mm-hmm. And Conway waves at them, and they wave back at Conway. And Shannon's like, "What the hell is going on?" And Conway says, "How his arms and leg—they don't hurt anymore, and how the guys at the distillery are going to take care of him." And what Florida you find, Stanley smiles. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And Conway's just kind of blissed out, right? Um, and he's just—I think—kind of made peace with his his end or his his fate. Um, and. You know, you talk with the shield at the desk and then you move on to the, the next character and you talk about how, you know, the the big company tried to automate everything and realized that all of the machines had been programmed based on the tendencies of the humans who ran them. Um, and it, that gave me a real chuckle and a laugh knowing that's that's probably, you know, a true situation, a case that exists out there somewhere. Um, that the machines were optimized for the use of people and are not optimized for other machines to be interacting with it. Um, and they get into some philosophical discussion. But the, the biggest thing is at the end of this scene, when Conway and Shannon leave, the boat that passes by at the end has three hard time boys in it now, fully skeletonized, and you realize that one of them is Conway. Oh what? No! It's it's crazy. You didn't pick that I, up? I I didn't appreciate that until after the fact. Like after the after the scene ended, I kind of thought, "Oh, that's weird." And then um it it goes back to sort of the overworld map scene and Will is just casually talking about how uh yeah, only one of them came back. She uh she left her friend and I I thought, "Oh no. Don't no." And I yeah. I just <sighs> Jacob, you you look a little shell shocked. <laughs> I I don't I uh so uh words are hard. I get it. I get, <laughs> so the dog the, the dog watches as the boat goes away. I words. How do you do that? Right. So so what Jacob's experiencing right now is the moment I felt kind of being punched punched in the gut when I watched the three skeletons in the rowboat row away, knowing that there were only two before and Conway did not come back to the boat with me. Um, 
that to me was the moment like oh man like we've essentially just seen conway die we've we've seen the death of him right he's no longer an individual he's one of the hard time boys you know i I don't think any of them had names and and so this is effectively the death of him now does okay does the dog end up coming back with us on the ship so now I guess the oh, words. Okay, so there's a choice. I guess there's a choice because your dog is walking along the side of this this um this boat path, and there's either like a skull or like a like a go back symbol. And I had no idea what that was for, but I guess that means like your your dumb on the verge of death dog can either go with uh the hard time boys or stay with the crew. Really? Oh. I missed the boat on this completely. Oh dang! Well but done, I'm... well done. Good, good pun. <laughs> oh. Okay, so while Jacob recovers and, and Adam <laughs> <laughs> watches watches the reassembly of Mister McCourt in person, um, yeah, to me this was the gut punch scene. This is what I don't want to say everything has been building up to, but this is what we were were here for the the effective death of Conway. Um, the, the unraveling of a man that we had been, I think, largely identifying or playing through the eyes of for most of this game. And, you know, it, it seems like it comes so fast, but it, it was a slow, chonky episode. You know, there, there are a lot of moments throughout where you, you learn more about Conway and you see him just become resigned to his fate. Okay, I built myself back up here. Um, (laughs) I knew that he was gone. I just thought that he had gone somewhere and maybe we'll see him again later. And when your puppy died, he really did go to the farm. Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, Michael, no! Yep, he went to a farm upstate somewhere. So he could run free with all the other dogs. I'm broken again. Probably went to Kentucky even. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So as part of the conversation that happens between Conway and Shannon, she essentially says like, uh, okay, I'll, t- I'll take your truck and I'll deliver it for you. I'll finish this for you. Um, because now Conway has more, more and other obligations. And to me, this is, this is the moment that underlined that the debt in Kentucky Route Zero that it's talking about is more than just the dollars that you owe um, and more than just the stress and the pressure around it. It is the, the obligations that you have to the people around you who you've associated with. Um, and so, yeah, that's, it's, it's the scene for me that, that this whole episode is built around that whole idea about moral obligation um that and it it makes so much sense especially with the characters that you continue to amass throughout the entire game because i mean you know shannon could have said no i'm i'm not going to join you past elkhorn mine or junebug and johnny could have just said no you know what this is where we get off ezra could have left on his eagle but they you've essentially amassed this party uh, throughout the entire game, and so it's it's really interesting to see how that actually impacts not only the story itself, but but the way in which you you play the game. Um, where you know, like in any RPG, the more characters that you amass, the more abilities and traits you acquire for for gameplay, and you see that during the different dialogue boxes that you're given, especially in in Act Three, 
where, you know, you can respond with any one of the characters at one time. And uh, so, you know, uh, I sometimes I, I, I like to think of it as like the Final Fantasy VII party where, you know, Conway is Cloud and Shannon is Aerith. And, you know, I'm, I'm still trying to figure it out, but I'm, I'm pretty sure <laughs> Kate Sith is probably Ezra. And uh, but uh, <laughs> but I digress. Um. Oh, so sorry, from I'm there, so broken. Thank from you. there, we move on to Sam and Ida's, which is yeah. What was this? Sam and Ida's <laughs> is a great little piece. We've been told throughout that Sam and Ida's has the best food. That Ida is a celebrity around here, mm-hmm. um, and it's this just a great little piece of storytelling of how this place went from a really, really subpar fried fish joint to being the place that everybody wants to come to to eat around here. Um, and yeah, you, you you hear it from both Ida's perspective and Sam's perspective. You also get a really nice little scene where Johnny and Ezra are playing with a claw machine. Um, and you can tell Johnny is having thoughts about, okay, well, like, maybe we can... Maybe we should keep maybe we should hang out with Ezra and and protect him when this is all over. When maybe we when, should kidnap we go this back child. Up. Yeah, <laughs> in a way, you know, yes. <laughs> with um, kidnapping, and, making a new friend, what's the difference? Two yeah. years? Ah. Yeah. And and the conversation that he's clearly prepping to have with Junebug and and knowing that um knowing that Junebug's just really afraid of losing the dynamic. Um, but at least that's also what she robots, says. But go on. It, but it seems just really clear to me that that June June bugs just really afraid of change, right? Really afraid of that that maturing and not having the freedom, the loss of freedom that um, having someone else, uh, you know, re- really does impact. Um, so yeah, I, I love the little Sam and Ida's bit. Um, I don't know if there's. A whole lot more we want to get into here but i thought it was just a really great way to follow up a really gut punchy scene with conway going to his death um two th- quick things all the food is shellacked because i guess sam has a really <laughs> bad memory and needs to look at the food before he makes the food um but also there's a fun scene where he comes up from no ida no 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 so the food is shellacked as a reminder of the conversations that the two divers uh, that had come and were talking about uh, were having about where to find the best fresh food and fresh fish and shrimp and et cetera, et cetera. And every time he looks at that meal, he follows the breadcrumb trail back to that conversation. And that allows him to go out that day and find the catch of the day, the next fish. And just as well, it inspires... Ida or, or Ida every single day to really push the envelope with her cooking and come up with something new and exciting every single day, um, which uh, also, um, I, I don't know how far you guys got into the menu when trying to pick out something to eat, um, but it, I, I think I got about <laughs> eight, eight or nine like dialogue boxes deep, and I finally just told myself i'm fairly positive there's no end to this menu so i just had to pick something <laughs> but uh, <laughs> i don't remember what i picked other than it was the third option on the first page i'm like this looks good let's go let's go butterfish yeah. like right here 
Mm-hmm. And you got to name the thing that was caught, which was also cute. Oh, yeah. yeah. The last thing I remember from this, uh, this scene is about music. So imagine that there's in this really bad seafood restaurant, there's like a really bad like opera, sorry, opera singer in the in the background just like singing very, very low so you can barely hear it. But then right as the scene ends, there's a boat that just moves uh, across the scene and it's it's funny. I looked into it, and it's the bed quilt ramblers who are the three characters, Emily, Ben, ben Emily, and Bob, Bob. Exactly. from the first act of the game, singing a song by Ben Babbitt. This is a really mind-blowing uh, moment in the game where you, you really realize that those three characters that we've seen time and time again these these three musicians are actually the the basement people that i like to refer to them as uh, ben bob and emily and uh, and we we see them in every single uh, act uh, throughout the game thus far we see them at the very beginning in the basement of equus oils we see them in the forest um we also see them again playing uh in the foreground of the marquez house back in act one and then we see them again uh at the door of the museum of dwellings in act three and now we see them as sort of the the Greek chorus to close out the the events of this entire act, and the the song that they sing is is really really hard hitting um, to Shannon of all people. At least I think so because it talks about um, you know how uh, I I have nowhere to go and and there is no such thing as home for me. And I I think uh, you know for someone like Shannon after what she's done and how she just casually left Conway um, it really speaks to her character and just as well for for the character Conway um, there there's really no going back for him or at least he seems to think so and he he's he's pretty well okay with that he's a man um, resigned to his fate <sighs> oh <laughs> uh, so with that uh, w- once you pass that I think we could probably lump the two final scenes in the game together yeah um I don't think they're as eventful as the rest of the game. It's just the end of the the game here. So it's a neighborhood and then the silo of late reflections. I just want to make sure, did you guys stay on the boat for any of this? Or did you kind of engage with the off-boat activities? Uh, I was off the boat for both scenes. I honestly can't remember. (laughs) Okay. I was definitely Uh, there for the theremin playing. The, yes. Okay. So a neighborhood. The big point there is essentially your your tugboat arrives at a small houseboat, and on top of the ship, uh, Clara plays this beautiful solo theremin piece, and essentially that's that's most of it. And doesn't Ezra join in too there? Yeah. This is this is sort of the culmination of your playing as Ezra throughout the the rest of this scene or the rest of this act because at any time you're playing as Ezra you're actually given the option to record any of the found sounds that you find whether on or off the ship and uh, I mean I I played the role of Junebug and Johnny off the ship but my guess is that you were then allowed to use those found sounds and incorporate them into uh, Clara's theremin performance at least that that was my interpretation because even uh, Junebug and Johnny comment uh, off the ship while listening, saying, uh, "No, you know what? He uh, he knows how to handle and play a, a tape recorder. He's uh, he's pretty good at that." <laughs> so yeah, I I only recorded one sound, and it was a cat. So <laughs> I, I also I recorded that sound. 
I'm fairly certain that that's what happens, is whatever sounds you record kind of come into the theremin piece. Uh, and then the final scene, which is uh, at the Silo of Late Reflections, which I think, again, is a is a beautifully directed scene in that, like, the camera comes from above and essentially it's like a spiral staircase and the tugboat gets to a point where it cannot move any further and the group's like, I guess this is where we continue on foot and that's the end of the act right yeah and they they realize that you know they they have to carry on conway's journey without him and so they they decide to uh, i i guess they have to unload the truck to figure out what's inside because there is at least at this point no physical way that they can get that truck up this rickety old flight of spiraling staircase uh stairs going up this silo and so i i guess they're just going to have to carry it uh, any final thoughts about Act 4 of Kentucky Route Zero before we close this very in-depth discussion? Yeah, so, you know, what you had said at the top, Jacob, of, you know, it kind of being long but not anything of note really happening or, or nothing really important happening, I feel like this episode is understated and it's poetic. Um, I did not pick up on a lot of the Greek references and... and um, you know, touchstones that you did, Jacob, but I absolutely think you're correct that those were there um, because this seems like um, a really somber, collective, you know, big culmination after the the high point, the real climax in Act 3. And I feel like this is where we really start to, you know, make our way towards the end. It's the signaling that we're almost there. The the end is nigh. Um <laughs> And, you know, to to me, that scene, that moment and everything it was building up to where Conway is just another skeleton on the boat um, was so powerful and so impactful that, you know, I, I see it as, as a success, even if it wasn't as jaw dropping as, you know, getting into a, a doctor, you know, Dr. Evil, a, a villain's lair <laughs> from Bond, you know, it was it was it was important and and splashy in its own way yeah and i I guess for me uh, you know i guess i was underwhelmed one because i didn't fully understand the grasp of like hey a big thing happened and you missed it dumb dumb (laughs) um but i think that just the middle part may have lost me just because again we know what this game is but there's a lot of right there's so much writing in this act compared to other acts and I think a lot of it's world building and building characters that, you know, speak on subjects that are touched on in this thing. It lost me in the middle, but I think there are parts in it that I will absolutely always remember, including, you know, the Rum Colony, um, the Kavansky Center. Uh, there's just some really cool moments. And I, I just don't know where the hell this game is going. But I've said that since the beginning, so this is no different. That that's my favorite part about this scene. I, I will say it's it's not my favorite scene. Um, I certainly did enjoy it, not nearly as much as previous scenes. Um, but the the thing that I you mean acts acts, acts right acts yes excuse me. Um, but the uh, but the thing that I enjoyed the most about it was that similar to Act Three, it just leaves you with the question: Where do we go from here? I mean, Conway is gone. Um, there's this spiral staircase to nowhere, and uh, we've still got this truck 
with some sort of delivery to make after this crazy boat ride. So um, I am very, very much excited to see where it goes from here. And I'm also really worried and disheartened to know that this is almost the end of this story of this game. So I'm, I'm really excited to know what happens. From here, we have another interlude. Uh, and then the, 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 fi- the finale, Act 5. Um, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting into those. And maybe something else after the Act 5. But what? we'll see. Uh, speaking of all good things coming to an end, this that's the end of this podcast. Uh, thanks for joining in, tuning in. Uh, if you want to find all things Left Behind Game Club, you can do that at leftbehindgame.club uh, on the internet. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Left Behind Club. You can find us on Instagram at Left Behind Game Club. And if you're interested in our Discord server, uh, we've got one of those. You can come in and talk about game deals, uh, gaming news, and other topics. You can find the link to that on our website. Again, leftbehindgame.club or even leftbehindgameclub.com. We've got two URLs because we are ready. Um, Adam, thank you so much for coming on this episode. Uh, your seventh time, the charm, I guess. <laughs> uh, if people want to find your work and what you do on the internet, uh, where can they find you? Uh, the best place for people to reach me is uh, just at my website, adamayanetta.ca. It's my uh, online professional portfolio for my work as a singer. Um, but just as passionate as I am about music, I'm equally passionate about video games, especially great video games, and talking about them with great people such as yourselves. So I, I really, really do appreciate this opportunity to to have uh talked about such an amazing game with with such wonderful wonderful people uh we always blush when you say that uh <laughs> michael uh if people want to find you on the internet where can they do so they can find me at michaelruflo.com or in the discord server you can find that by going to leftbehindgame.club clicking the big button in the middle of the page that'll take you right into the discord um i've got my knives ready come at me bros let's go <laughs> Oh, uh, you and can you can also me. find me at RuflowM on most social places online. But Jacob, where can the people find Mr. Conan O'Brien, Bob Barker, impersonator <laughs> himself, our host, the man, the myth, the legend, the one we love so dear? Where can they find you? Wow, that is energy. Uh, you can find me on the internet at Jacob McCord on all major social media platforms. Uh, you can find me on YouTube too because I make YouTube videos now. Yeah. Uh, YouTube.com slash Jacob McCourt. Uh, there's two out there now. Uh, there's one that I made about cool indie games, but I've also got a second one out about uh, the history of the launch of the Xbox 360. Uh, so you can check that out. It's it's neat. Uh, there may even be more there. Who knows? Uh, but Michael, uh, what do we always say to our listeners at the end of our program? Glory, it's good to be among friends.